pray that you will settle our minds and hearts to give them the attention that is due to them. And then we pray, Lord, that you will make your word effectual in our hearts. Lord, we'll grow in grace together by the time we spend together in your word. Lord, you will draw us nearer to yourself. Comfort, encourage, correct, admonish us by your word. And Lord, may you be glorified then in the end result. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I want to start this morning with just a simple question. And that question is, does God love you? I'm not talking about the fact that God loves everybody. I mean, does he love you? Is his love on you? Is it upon you? Is it a part of who you are, being in the way of the love of God? Now, that's a question that's so intimate and so private that no one else can answer it for you. It's a question that is to be answered by you, by God's word and God's promise, and your relationship to his love by faith. Not by your feelings or how you assess your circumstances. By this we mean that there are those people who judge the love of God for them on the basis of how they feel. For them it's an emotional or a sentimental thing. If they feel warm and happy when they hear of or they they think about God, then they imagine themselves to be the objects of God's love. For many, in fact, their opinion of God's love for them is based on the fact that they think he certainly ought to love them. After all, he is God, and isn't God supposed to love everyone? And that's the way they look at this idea of God loving them. The relationship that such people have with God is like a roller coaster as they ride the ups and downs of their feelings from day to day. It's amazing, beloved, how many people who have no discernible love for God at all presume upon his love for them. Others judge the nature of their relationship to God superstitiously on whether they feel blessed or not. They survey their circumstances, and then on the basis of where they think things are going well or poorly for them, they either believe God loves them or not. These are the people who look on those who are well and who are prospering and say, boy, God must really love you. And sometimes they say it that way. Sometimes they say it enviously. Sometimes they say it jealously. God must really love you because you're blessed and you have all these things. 
And they're often the same ones who, when something goes wrong in their lives, and they're faced with some hardship or trial or correction from the hand of God, they ask themselves questions like, if God loves me, why am I suffering this trial? Or why does God let bad things happen to good people like me? What sort of loving God does that sort of thing? Well, generally, beloved, such people are not reacting to their circumstances out of any sense of guilt or accountability to God. They don't wonder what they may have done that, that may be bringing discipline or warning to them. No, they tend to lay the blame at God's feet, claiming that he's arbitrary, that he is inconsistent or even unfair with his love and with his favors and his blessings and kindness. People who are determining whether God loves them on the basis of these sentimental or superstitious grounds don't have a good handle on what the scripture teaches us about the love of God. They're more inclined to define God's love according to what they imagine its nature ought to be rather than to what God says its nature is in his word. Now, our text this morning is a simple one, but it opens up a grand subject, which in the end brings us back to this question, does God love you? It's 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. Now, I ask you to turn there, if you will. 1 John Chapter 4, verse 8. You may have it in your notes as well. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And it's those last three words of this verse that crack open for us this profound subject of the love of God. That The end of that verse tells you God is love. Now, it might seem like a very simple statement, but it's so important and it's so deep that I'm afraid in a very real sense to try and open the subject because I don't know how I can possibly do it justice. And I feel like a man of unclean lips who ought not to dare to speak of something so holy, so righteous, so powerful, and so glorious as God's love. And if you think I'm being melodramatic, then you've not carefully considered this matter. You haven't considered it as it's presented to you in the Word of God. Now, I'm perfectly aware that John says later in this chapter, in verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. But the fear I'm talking about as I begin to talk about this subject, the fear I'm referring to isn't the sort that anticipates judgment or punishment. <clears throat> it's the fear that comes from not doing this matter justice, of coming short of both appreciating it myself and then expressing to you the whole of it. I know that 
any shortfall in the matters covered by the blood of Christ, and I'm not concerned with that aspect. But that doesn't mean that we should not care to be accurate and precise about matters like this, as accurate and precise as we can possibly be. It's also true that in uncertain times, when we as Christians don't know what may be required of us, it is absolutely vital that we have a handle on these things that we've been talking about lately. The nature and the surety of your relationship to God in and through Jesus Christ. The character of your prayer life and and what it's like and how real it is and how substantive it is. Your commitment to God's word. And yes, your understanding of the character of God's love. You need to understand the character of that love as you move forward, especially as you move forward into uncertainty. When you think of Scripture, as any of any one of you knows and understands it, don't you think of where else you find a statement quite like this one? God is love. I want you to notice that John is not telling you that God is doing something, but that God is something. There are many places where God is described as doing things. But this is different. It doesn't say this. This verse doesn't say this. You can look at it while I, while I give you this, but it's not. He who does not love does not know God, for God loves. That's not what this verse says. There's a sense in which that's true, but it's not what John says here. No, it says here God is love, expressing not what he does, but who he is as God. And as God, he is love. Most of the verses that refer to God being this or that refer to what he is to us or what he is for us or to his enemies. But this is different than that as well. We read throughout the scripture that God is merciful, that God is righteous, that God is holy, and so on. But again, that's different. Those verses refer to how he manifests himself and and, and who he is in relationship to you and me. But this one tells you that God is love itself, referring to who he is as God, rather than to what he does as God. And I don't mean by saying that he doesn't love, he does, because he is love. But the emphasis here is not on the fact that that he loves you, but that he is love. We also know that God is holiness. The angels declare him to be so in Isaiah 6.3. One cries to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And we know that he's the epitome of all his other attributes. All those things that make up who he is as God. But this one, in its direct expression in scripture here, stands out uniquely 
with a statement that John makes earlier in 1 John. It's in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, and there he writes, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. So he's saying two different things here. God is light. God is love. And in him is no darkness at all. Now these two verses, beloved, express to us the essence of God in a very direct and declarative way. One of the men who wrote a classic commentary on 1 John is Samuel E. E. Pierce. And Samuel Pierce sums this up in this way. Who can find out the Almighty to perfection? Yet by saying God is love, what is this but to declare the whole of him? Now, it's one thing to make that statement that God is love. And it's something quite different to grasp or comprehend the whole of it. Because you and I, when we think of this, that God is love, we're standing on on the edge of something that's so vast and so complex and so profound that our finite mind can hardly grasp the whole of it. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't understand anything concerning it. We can. We can understand a great deal about it. But we just can't grasp the whole of it. Think of it this way. God says, and this is again, this is 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. John says this, In this the love of God was made manifest toward us. So this, this love that God is, it was shown to us. Well, how was it shown to us? That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. So we realize that God's love was communicated to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. But is there anyone here who knows and believes that? Who is willing to testify that you perfectly understand it and grasp the whole of it. In this, the love of God was manifest. It was shown to you in the fact that God sent his son to die for you. But is there anybody who say, yeah, I got that. I understand that perfectly. Now, we can't, even in the manifestation of this love of God, grasp the whole of it. What we can grasp, we rejoice in and we thank God for and we praise God for and we understand it. It's simple. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. We we understand that and, and, and we're thankful for it. But we don't grasp the whole of it. Thomas Watson says, his love is as far beyond our thoughts as it is above our deserving. Now, this reality, beloved, that God is love, tells us that this is indeed who God is in his essence. And as such, it has to impact every one of his attributes and the whole of his providences. Because he is love, 
Not just that he manifests or shows love. Not just that he exercises love, but the fact that he is love itself. It has to impact everything. All of his attributes, all of those attributes we're familiar with, his holiness, his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his justice. All of those things have to be impacted by the fact that he is love. And all of his providences, the things that he does, and the way he does them. And in fact, the scripture demonstrates that. And you probably listened to Tyler read it this morning without even thinking about it. One of those places. We'll come to it in just a moment. Well, I'm going to start with Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament. But he's actually bringing us back to the beginning. And in Malachi chapter 1 and verse 2, the Lord says through his prophet, I have loved you. I have loved you. And then he says, you, that is Israel, you say, in what way have you loved us? And then the Lord answers, was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord, yet Jacob I have loved. Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. What was the motive for bringing all the covenant promises that are ours in Christ Jesus down through Jacob? God's love. God's love. In Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 37, this is God talking to Israel. And he's saying in the days of Moses, and because he that is God loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. And he brought you out of Egypt with his presence and with his mighty power. Earlier in this, he says, it isn't because of your numbers. It isn't because of your love for me. It's because of my love for you that you've been chosen in this special way to know these blessings. When the queen of Sheba was surveying all that Solomon had and was doing. She responded by saying to him in 2 Chronicles 9.8, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on his throne to be king for the Lord your God. Because your God has loved Israel to establish them forever, therefore he made you king over them to do justice and righteousness. But why is Solomon on the throne? The Queen of Sheba said. She's being inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak here. She says, you're on the throne, Solomon, because God is love. And that love is manifested in you being put in that position. In Jeremiah 31.3, Jeremiah says, The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. You come to me because I love you, because I am love. And then we come to John 3.16. What was the great motivator for sending his son into the world? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's because God is love. In 1 John 16, 27, 
Jesus says, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from him. In 1 John 4, 19, John writes, we love him because he first loved us. And now's that passage. Now comes that passage in Revelation, the last illustration I want to bring from the scripture here. But can you see how God is declaring that his love is a part of everything he is doing? The covenant promises he is fulfilling, the way he's working out his providences in the world. It's love, his love that is behind it all. And now you come to Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 1 and verse 5. And there, John says that this is coming from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who what? What's it say there? Who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And here again, we're pointed to this great character of God as being the thing behind the fact that we have been washed from our sins and the kings and princes before God. What is the great force behind it? It is his love as God, because God is love. And it flows down through everything that he says, through everything that he does, through all that he is. And that's what John is laying claim to here by the Holy Spirit. James Henry Thornwell said, Surely our God is love. Creation shows it as well as the cross. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves here. Because before we begin to talk about how this love is manifested among us, we first need to consider just some of the nature of this love, at least as much as, as we can get from what we know. In fact, I don't even want to try and tackle too much of this at this time, I just, there's just so much to think about even here. So the first thing is this, that the love that God is, is not a created thing. It is who God is. And it's Robert Candlish that, uh, uh, who points out that this love of God is not like the light which was created at the beginning of the world. We read in Genesis chapter 1 that the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light and there was light. When we're talking about God as love, and this love which God has, there wasn't a time when there wasn't this love. And then God said, of all the emotions, I think I'll come up with this love. And I will create the emotion of love. No, God is love. It is who he is. There was a time when darkness brewed across the face of the earth. And then God said, let there be light. And by divine fiat or order or command, love came into being. But it's not so with love. Because God is love and he is eternal and infinite in his being and his glory and his blessedness and his perfections. He has through all eternity been love. 
He is love. He has always been love. So this is no new reaction. God didn't create man and look at man and say, oh, wow, that's something to love. Or say, how am I going to react to this creature? I love him. He was loved before you were there to be loved. That's the point. So one of the characteristics of this love which God has toward you as a Christian is that it is an eternal love that stems from the essence of who God is. That's how you know that he loved you first. Because you didn't generate love in him. This love generated your very existence and certainly your salvation. So here you are this morning, sitting before God. And even now, this extraordinary manner of love is being shed in the hearts of every one of you who is a Christian. And you know what I'm going to ask. What is that like for you? What reaction does that have in you that you're you're sitting here this morning as a believer and being shed into your life is this eternal love of God who is love itself. What is it like to be blessed like that? What is it like to know that kind of relationship, that kind of, of intimate relationship with the living God, to be loved like that? In Romans 5.5, 5, Paul says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So all you believers this morning, you're basking in the love of God the one who is love itself. I love to be the object of my wife's love. I love to be the object of the love of my children and grandchildren. But this is a love that transcends all of that, is different from all of that, and it's mine through the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we even put it into words to be loved with this kind of love? Secondly, all true love is of God. True love is communicated, not created. Begotten, one might say, says Candlish, not made. It is divine property, a divine affection, it's not merely of God, as every good gift is of God. It is of God as being his own property, his own affection, his own love. It is, it is wherefore, wherever it is found, the very love wherewith God loves. Now that may be a hard thing to wrap our minds around. But what it means is that the love that you have, that is all true love, is not something generated in your own heart 
by your own effort, through your own emotions, but it's that which comes to you and flows out of you from God because of the love that he gives to you. It is his love shared with you. Look at the verse just above our text in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. John says there, Beloved, let us love one another, for God, uh, for love is of God. And everyone who loves, truly loves, is born of God and knows God. The expectation that you'll be able to love each other stems from the fact that God is love. That he's the fountain of all love. And that's true whether we're speaking about the love in the context of your family or whether we're speaking of love in the body of Christ or whether we're talking about love for the world at large in the proper and true sense. As he communicates that love to those who are his by faith in Jesus Christ, that knowing of God then manifests itself in our love for others. Hobbes said, as, love, as God is love, and as we by regeneration and adoption are his children, we are bound to exercise love habitually. And what does that look like for you? When you love your wife, husbands, with the love of God, shed a bread broad in your heart, what does that look like? Wives, when you love your husbands with the love of God shed abroad in your hearts, what does that look like? Children, when you love your parents with the love of God shed in your heart, what does that look like? When you look out on those who are lost in trespasses and sins. And you love them with the love of God. What does that look like? What sacrifices are you willing to make for their soul's sake? Knowing that you're loving them with the love of God. And then thirdly, this eternal love was and is and ever will be yours in Christ. One of the outstanding evidences of this truth that God is love. And it has been who he is from all eternity. Is the very fact that it was the love of God. Which before the foundations of the world was fixed upon every one of you who believe or who will believe. That love was fixed upon you before you were. Sin had blinded you to this love. Perhaps it's blinding you even now. But to restore your sight, that very love sent to you in, in the Son of God was there so that you might see the true character of God's love. So that it may be made manifest in your sight. And in you, so that you could believe and rejoice in the love of God again. Jesus says, the Father loved me. I also have loved you. Abide in my love. 
And again, I have to ask, what is that like for you to be the object of such divine affection? To know yourself to be loved with this love in this way. Thomas Watson said, the seeing God, loving God, and being beloved of God will cause a jubilation of spirit and create such holy raptures of joy in the saints that are unspeakable and full of glory. So how does it impact your life to be looked at this way? To know that the one who is love loves you. And then lastly, it's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. This love plows down and through every and anything that stands in its way. It can overcome the most bitter malice. It can overcome hatred. It can manifest itself in the darkest and most unlikely circumstances. It can crush the hardest heart and it can overcome the most defiant and rebellious will. And every believer here is a testimony of that. That this love can do that. It can break through. It can come to where, it needs, where it's assigned and nothing can hinder it. There's a softness in God's love to be sure. But that shouldn't cause you to lose sight of the fact that it burns white hot. It is forceful, it is jealous, and it is powerful. And if it's yours, you are in possession of that, that love, that white hot, powerful love of God. And we're going to pick up there next time. But let me close with these words just to verify what I've just claimed in the name of God. That is powerful. It's because it is powerful. It is because it burns white hot. It is because God is love that no one can separate you who are in Christ from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or the sword implying death itself can any of those things separate you from this love that God is? No, none of it can. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter, Paul says. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who what? Loved us, loved us, loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you can't be separated from it because God is love. And if you're in Christ Jesus this morning, that is the love you know and is the love that's shed abroad in your heart. And the question is, does God love you? Does he love? Is this love yours? 
If you're outside of Christ, this love can't be yours because God loves himself and therefore he is just and in righteous and holiness he cannot bear the sight of sin. But because he does love us, he sent his son to die for us on the cross at Calvary that our sins might be forgiven and that through that sacrifice we might have new life through Jesus Christ and know what it is to have the love of God shed abroad in our hearts. To those of you who know that and believe that, go this morning contemplating what is it to be loved like this? What does it mean to me? How does it impact my life? How does it affect the way I relate to, to, my, to my loved ones, to my friends in Christ, my brothers and sisters in Christ, to those who are outside of Christ? And if, you're, don't, if you don't know that love, then here it is shed abroad. And if you're saying, I can't see it, where is the love of God? The love of God is manifested in this, that he sent his son to be the payment for your sins, that through his shed blood you might have the forgiveness of sins. And not only see, but know the power of the love of God in your heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that your love would speak to us in love this morning. That everyone here who is yours by that love may rejoice in that love and give thanks for that love. And Lord, if there's anyone here who's outside of that love, we pray, Lord, that they would look upon Christ who went to the cross, who died a death there, not for himself, because he himself was righteous, but for sinners. That sinners through him might find the forgiveness of sins and know your love. Father, I pray that they would see that clearly, understand that, and embrace it by faith, by your grace. And Lord, may we all rejoice to know that our God, the God we worship and love, is love itself. For we ask it in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.